0: Today's episode of Help Me Teach the Bible was recorded in 2016. You can find episodes on every book of the Bible, along with topical conversations on Bible teaching, at tgc.org podcasts.
1: I needed to get the big picture. And one of the things the big picture did is it, it made me realize that if God is good, And if God is holy, and if the Bible is trustworthy, then I was on the wrong
0: side of this conversation. Welcome to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie. This is the podcast for people who love God's Word, and we read it, wanting to hear God speak to us through His Word, wanting to understand it. Even own whole books of the Bible, have a firm grip on the message of them. And not only because we want to hear God speak to us personally, but this is the podcast for people who also give it back out in many different situations. Perhaps it's just around the family dinner table, or maybe you lead a youth group, or a women's Bible study, or teach a Sunday school class, or lead a small group discussion and you pick up books of the Bible to teach and discuss through. This is the podcast for you. And I have an incredible guest with me today, uh, a new friend, Rosaria Butterfield. Rosaria, thank you for being willing to sit down with me today and to help us teach the Bible.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure and joy. Thank you, Nancy.
0: You know, I think I heard one time that when you, uh, when you make an apology, it should be as public as the offense, Mm-hmm. So I have an apology to make, and I might as well make it on the podcast so that it will be as public as the <laughs> oh, offense. Oh, no, I'm a little scared. Don't be scared. Okay. No, okay. this is like, you know, like when people talk about things they, uh, that were like most embarrassing moment, things they did that were really embarrassing. This is one for me. Uh, a number of years ago, I read The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. And it was one of those things like I read it, I started reading it, and I didn't get out of bed that day until I finished. Oh, no. I couldn't. I should put apologize it to you. No, no, no. <laughs> I just loved it. And so I told the folks at the Gospel Coalition, I want to write a review of this book. And I was so glad they said yes. And so I wrote the review and they published it. And pretty soon somebody put a comment on there that, that kind of asking the question, like, well, couldn't you at least get her name right? <laughs> I, it's not, uh, oh, Rosemary. it's it's not that I like messed up one of your names. <laughs> I, I called you Rosemary Butterworth. Oh, that's hysterical. Did you not know this? No, I don't read
1: reviews. Oh gosh,
0: I didn't even have to apologize.
1: You, you did not, but that is hysterical because I want you to know, Nancy, I've been called worse. <laughs> Just in case you weren't sure. Rosemary Butterworth is not even going to Make it on the charts. But I love you, and thank you for reviewing that book. But um, I loved that book. Oh, praise God.
0: Yeah, and I praise loved God. getting to share it with lots of people oh. and, and recommend it to lots of people. And Rosemary so, Butterworth thanks you, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, what I'm really does – this, does this ever happen to you that, like, once you – say someone's name wrong like then you have a hard time breaking the habit yeah, i know and with a name like rosaria i'm so sorry so you know I'm so if named- i call you rosemary will you forgive me oh, again yeah. and i like, just keep forgiving yeah me. you know
1: i'm named after the rosary which i think every reformed pastor's wife should have a kind of icebreaker like that you know what i mean so it's all good
0: <laughs> what a relief what a relief well, if you've read either of Rosari's books, then you know that she's a former tenured professor of English at Syracuse University. And since you didn't read my review, <laughs> which I'm a little offended, I I'm guess, so now. Sorry. I think you owe me an apology. <laughs> I do. I mean, one thing I said in that review was in reading your book, just um, that one of the wonderful things about it is that clearly you know how to use words. Oh, well, And put them together. Um But that was a while ago. Mm -hmm. Life for you these days, as I thought through your many uh, roles, uh, you're a pastor's wife of an RPC church. You are a homeschool mom of how many kids? Uh, Homeschool two. And we've adopted four. Okay. But it's also clear when you read your book, you're a good neighbor. Mm, That's my joy. You're a community creator. Mm -hmm. Hey, everybody, come over. Let's do this. Yep and you are a gospel truth teller by God's grace alone yeah fearless in many ways and I think that's one of the things mm-hmm. I really appreciate admire about you it's an incredible thing in our world today when in it it's beginning to cost us something mm-hmm. right yeah to yeah. go against the tide of the yeah. culture I don't have to tell you that you would know that far more than I do uh so I just I uh, I am so grateful that as the body of Christ we have your clear, uncompromised and yet such grace-filled voice speaking to some of the issues of our day. So thank you.
1: Well, I praise God that I get to be here, and no place else.
0: Awesome. Yeah. So I mentioned your your first book. Mm-hmm. The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, which mm-hmm. is just a great title. <laughs> and then over these last few weeks, I opened up Openness Unhindered, um, your second book, which once again, I just couldn't put down. We went to Florida for a little trip and I just sat there in the sun and read it from start to finish and oh. marked it all up and already loaned it out to a friend. So I didn't have it back for this interview But because uh, I just couldn't help but share it with my friends i want to read a quote to you uh from it he said i started meeting with ken and floy regularly and mm-hmm. so if anyone's read your books they know that um you the the way you came to christ out of the life you were living uh well i shouldn't tell the story you tell the story. <laughs> who who were Ken and Floy, and how yeah, is it that you yeah. came about meeting with them regularly? Well, Ken and
1: Floy Smith. Ken, Ken Smith was the pastor of the Syracuse Reformed Presbyterian Church, and Floy was his wonderful and lovely wife. And. I had written an article in the – it was an op-ed piece in the Syracuse Post Standard uh, critiquing and condemning the promise keepers for their gender politics. And I received a lot of responses to this. I received hate mail and fan mail. But one letter that I received defied my filing system. It was from Ken Smith and it was the kindest letter of opposition I had ever received. And at this time, the backstory you know, so who cares about that, right? Well, mm-hmm. here's why I cared, because I am a really good selfish manipulator. And at the time, I had finished my tenure book, and I was writing a book on the religious right from a lesbian feminist perspective. In order to do so, I needed to read the Bible. And I'm a serious scholar. I don't have a reading knowledge of Greek or Hebrew. I just, I I really was looking for a Christian who was a Bible reader. You know, a lot of Christians are just kind of, I don't know, me and Jesus read the Bible like it's a horoscope. But I needed to get to the book and what it was really saying and how it was really informing people because I really wanted to know how this book got so many people off track, you know, I, you <laughs> know, I, you know. Um, and when Ken wrote me that letter, quite frankly, I thought he was like, um, kind of like an unpaid research assistant. So when he invited me to his home for dinner, I accepted. I thought it would be really good for my research.
0: You weren't searching for I God. was, oh my
1: word, I was not searching. My life was fine. I was not, I was happy. All was well. I was writing a book because, um, because that's what I do. I write books and I, I was excited to write a book that was on my heart. And, um, and I wanted to get to the bottom of this. I mean, there are some questions I had. Why, what is with Christians? Why wouldn't they leave consenting adults alone? Uh, why would they say that I was in sin when I was a good caregiver and a good neighbor and a good friend, a good teacher? What in the world did people, especially Christians, want from me? And what did the Bible have to do with it? How could this ancient book... That was written through various, what I thought was just schemes of oral history. And at that point, I said to my students, look, I wouldn't trust a chocolate chip cookie recipe that came to me by oral history. Why would I take a book that's supposed to be a guide to faith in life? That's ridiculous. No, think, no, no sensible person would accept this. And at the same time, I was also a, a scholar of the 19th century. Um, Freud, Hegel, Marx, and Darwin were very much my worldview informers And I genuinely thought that Rousseau was right, that people are good, and what makes us bad is the society around us that fails to allow us to flourish in our our personal truth and our personal sense of self. And so with all of that, I was coming at the Bible, and then here was Ken Smith, my potential unpaid research helper. And um, he invited me to his house for dinner, and I accepted
0: and that began more than just dinner, more oh, like no, a did. relationship. Oh,
1: very much a relationship. Um, in fact, I loved them instantly. And um, and I felt very much that we had a lot in common, um, a lot in common. We, we, um, we could talk about anything. Um, Ken was – you could tell he was a good teacher, although I would never seen him teach at this point, not yet – Um, He was the kind of person who would leave room for you to change your position or your mind without being shamed by that. Uh, He was gracious. He prayed in front of me. Now, I had heard plenty of prayers, um, you know, from protesters at Planned Parenthood, Mm. protesters at Gay Pride March. I mean, I know what it's like to be the heathen that's supposed to overhear the prayer that's supposed to convert me, right? That was not Ken and Floyd at all. They were just really um, uh, authentic. They weren't in a rush to seal the deal. No. Can you imagine that? So the first meeting at their house, they, did, they omitted two things in the rule book of how Christians are supposed to deal with a heathen like me. Number one, they did not share the gospel. I mean, they just didn't do it. And, and number two, they did not invite me to church, which made me wonder, am I chopped liver? I mean, what is this? They actually took the risk that I was going to get back in my little chuck with my NARAL bumper stickers and my gay rights bumper, st- bumper stickers, drive the mile and a half to my home, and not be hit by a train, a bus, or a plane, and have it be all their fault because they just didn't share the gospel in time. Mm-hmm. They took the risk that God was actually in charge of all of this. Mm-hmm. and And God didn't need Ken Smith to rush the providential
0: outpouring
1: of events that would happen next. Mm-hmm.
0: And so at that point, describe what happened in relationship specifically to the Bible. How did yeah, that evolve?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I had been, I had been diving in because um, before I work on any book, what I would normally do, any book that I'm going to write, um, I'm an English professor, so English professors write books about books. And so what you do when you're writing books about books is you you come up with the books you're writing about, and I would read them cover to cover a few times just to get a big picture handle. I'm what's called a whole book scholar, so my job, my interest is to see how a book holds together. And that's a very common thing. The 19th century was very much the rise of the novel as we know it today. So that's what I look at. I look at the whole book. And immediately when I started trying to dive into the Bible, I realized that I needed some help. This was, this was more like a library than a book. But it was also a book. And I really wanted somebody who was a reader but a Bible scholar who could help me understand and navigate a little bit about this book. But it was fairly standard for me to just t- you know read it through, read a book and, you know, I'll, I'll tell you, a lot happens if you just sat down tonight and you read you read Genesis. I mean, I don't mean a verse a day, but I mean you just sat down and spent about an hour and a half and you read Genesis. One of the things you would see is that when sin enters the world, it becomes a bloodbath almost immediately. Mm. 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 But if you mm. read a verse a day or read it in just little passages, you, you lose the momentum. Mm. Um, but so I was curious. I was really curious about this book, and I also came with a lot of presuppositions. Mm-hmm. I came with the presuppositions that it was a, it was a woman hating book. Mm-hmm. I came with the presupposition that it was a slavery endorsing book. Mm-hmm. I came with the idea that if you were a white male slave owner, you'd love the book, and if you were pretty much anybody else, you would see how this book would deface and defame your integrity. And so that's really I mean, that's what I came expecting to find. Mm. Now, truth be told, I had never read the Bible. I had seen plenty of verses at placards at gay pride marches, mm-hmm. but I'm a serious enough scholar that I'm not willing to critique something if I haven't read it. I told my students over and over again, you earn the right to critique something by actually knowing it, and I needed to take my own and advice. You lived by it. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, you wrote in your book, I started meeting with Ken and Floyd regularly. Reading the Bible in earnest with pen in hand, mm-hmm. notebook in lap, I started to read the Bible the way that I was trained to read a book, examining its textual authority, mm-hmm. authorship, mm-hmm. canonicity, mm-hmm. and internal hermeneutics. Those mm-hmm. might be some challenging even for people who've grown up in the church and love mm-hmm. the Bible. Those terms in themselves might be somewhat or at least just not completely understood for some of some of us. Co- Would you mind walking us through that statement? Give us some insight on how those things should impact both our confidence in the Bible to even want to teach it, uh, as well as then how we teach it.
1: Yeah. You know, and and I'll tell you what I I was doing at this point, but I can't actually say that I would necessarily use these terms now for Bible teaching because I'm not seminary trained. I, I have a PhD in English literature. You know, the only thing that I am trained to do is to size up a book, which is amazing. Well, so, see, I
0: think it's really helpful to hear you say okay. that because I'm someone I grew up in church. I never did any no, of those things I, I, because I, I started being taught the Bible as soon as, as soon as I was born, and so and I never God questioned. For that. And I praise God for that. Mm-hmm. Thank God for that. But I think that what it, that means for some of us is we hardly know to how to handle it when someone comes to the place where we're teaching sits in the circle with us and they have the kind of presuppositions that you were talking about and we're we're left floundering so mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's how one way i think these things will help okay. us okay all
1: right well well so i'm an english professor by training i'm a whole book scholar and when you are looking at a book and but i say a whole book i mean you know reading a book from start to finish and seeing how it holds together one of the things you're going to look at, you're going to look at all of these things, and all of these they're not really literary devices. they're more like devices of interpretation. So one of the things that you would want to look at, textual authority is that that which allows you to know that the text is legitimate. So even with non um, uh, you know, even with something that's not the Bible, you would have um, editions of a book and you have to figure out which is the which is the legitimate one. Um, and so you might you might have um, folios that have been damaged, or so so I would look at its textual authority. What did the text? Who who says this is, the is real? How was it handed down? Does it there, ha- is there a
0: chain of that that Absolutely. can be identified? Absolutely.
1: Okay. And and who and what scholars talk about this? Okay. Um, um, you know, is it just a? It is. Is it just a kind of? Um, I don't know. I guess I, I thought that most Christians uh, and even Christian scholars just regarded the Bible as this holy god-breathed thing that could not stand the test of scholarship uh-huh. so i was really intrigued to know that there were bible-believing christians who talked about the textual authority and that the textual authority had a lot of meat to it mm-hmm. okay it, it wasn't it wasn't easy to dismiss i thought it would be really even easy to deeper
0: dismiss. and greater than a lot of other literature Absol- right? oh yeah
1: yeah Ab- no question so that was shocking, but then I thought, well, no problem. Everybody knows the authorship is going to be a problem, especially that <laughs> you know that Gospel of John. Everybody's heard about it, you know. So I so I studied I studied that also, and it, and it seemed to me again that the scholarship weighed in in a pretty you know I don't know in a way that that made sense to me. But, there but were was holes. I, you can
0: find scholarships that says all different kind of. Things about well, that. So when you talked about when you say you you started can. reading about it,
1: w- where did I go? Yeah. yeah, I was interested. See, there was a particular kind of scholarship I was interested mm-hmm. in, and that was what believers said about the book. And okay, the, the that's reason interesting. I wanted to do that is, to me, it was not very. It would not be very helpful to have um, what an unbeliever would say about the book because we didn't. I don't have an investment in it. And since I haven't committed my life to seeing it as my guide to faith in life, I can, I can call it either way. But you see, a believer, a belie- believers were really intriguing to me. They took this mm-hmm. book and they said, this is my guide to faith in life. And they had to either be fools, idiots, or know something I didn't know. Mm-hmm. And I was, I'm okay with all three being possible, but if they knew something I didn't know, one of the things that, 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 one of the ways that I would be able to trace that is to look at the scholarship. Mm. Um, So I was interested in that. I wanted to know how true believers thought, and I specifically wanted to know how true believers who were scholars thought about these things. Um, You know, canonicity is, is why these books and not others. That was really interesting to me because that that brought my whole book scholarship really into high gear um, because there uh, I'm raised, I was raised Catholic I'm named after the Rosary and there are some books in the Bible in the Catholic Bible that just aren't in uh, the Protestant Bible and one of the things I noticed when I read that. Was how different, literarily those those pieces were, and so that was interesting. That even stylistically, and in terms of what the angels could do and what they couldn't do, that, you could see those. You things. could see why it didn't fit together. So that was really interesting. And then, but finally, the one that was really compelling to me was the internal hermeneutics. You know, I as a at that point, you know, I was a lesbian activist and scholar. I had a lover. I had a I had a life. I had a community. Um, I presumed this this is how I was going to live for the rest of my life. I thought it was good, not just good but better. I, I believed that lesbian sexuality was more moral. I mean, you, we could, you know, that's kind of an interesting thing. Mm-hmm. So maybe I could see in your eyes and you're like, okay, mm-hmm. Rosaria. But I really believe this. Yeah. And one of the things I thought was that the Bible was internally contradictory. It condemned homosexuality at the same time that it condemned the wearing of cotton and wool. And I thought, well, this is going to be an easy one to punch down. <laughs> and then I learned that there are these internal hermeneutics in the Old Testament. There's the moral law. There's the ceremonial law, and there's the judicial law. And it's not like your Bible's color-coded. You actually have to read through it with a sense of whether this passage is referring to the nation of Israel, the the old nation that's no longer in existence, the biblical uh, nationhood, whether it referred to the ceremonial law, the temple worship before Christ, or whether it referred to the moral law of God. And that was fascinating because then a lot of my critiques they couldn't hold up. You mm-hmm. see, they kind of, yeah, it kind of fell apart. Mm-hmm. But then I thought, well, no problem because surely no, nobody really believes that the Old Te- Testament is important. Mm. I, I mean, you know, clearly these Christians believe that just the New Testament's important, and so everything in the Old Testament could go. But then you run into Acts fifteen, right, where the moral law of God. We learn is going to not only is it relevant now but it's going to be sustained through the new Jerusalem so mm-hmm. it has an eternal function and so all of those things were extremely helpful in guiding me in my critique because I was angry I was reading the Bible to critique it because I was terrified mm-hmm. because there were uh, you know my life as yours would be, if you were me. Mm-hmm. It was vital and important, and my, I had thought through these things. I wasn't a blank slate. And the particular way that the Bible condemned me, and Christians as well, just seemed completely unfair. And I just presumed that the Bible was wrong, and I was right. Mm-hmm. But working through these things, which were just skills I had from being a secular professor— Right. This is, mm-hmm. I didn't learn this in seminary. I didn't learn mm-hmm. this in Sunday school. I didn't have any of that. This is what secular professors do. These were the tools that God used to teach me that really I had to bring some different questions to the table
0: if I really wanted to unlock this text. Mm-hmm. You wrote that. As you begin to study, you found answers to your initial accusations. You mentioned earlier, especially it's gender politics and it's statements about slavery. And you say the Bible simultaneously encouraged and enraged me. And as you say that, and of course, we know your story now that you came to embrace Christ. But it makes me think about, you know, we're talking to people who uh, are teaching the Bible. And... Perhaps as we hear that part of your story, we should be encouraged because sometimes Mm -hmm. we're a little intimidated about that person who would come to our study that's kind of enraged by the Bible. Mm
1: -hmm. right? And
0: their set point is wanting to argue and maybe they didn't have the same approach you had of wanting to read what believers believed about the Bible, but they've got all these sources that really mock and belittle Mm -hmm. the uh, authority and consistency of the Bible. How can a response of rage that we see in someone, could that actually be a hopeful
1: sign or should we just kick
0: them out of our study?
1: No, no, no. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and one of the things we have to be careful about is feeling like we need to protect the Bible from the criticism of, 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 the, of the world. You know, the Bible doesn't really need us to protect it. And one of the things that we need to do as believers is be willing to lean hard on it with all of our weight. I mean, part of what it means to apply faith to your trials is like the psalmist. You cry out to God and you say, why have you forsaken me? I mean, our, our, Lord used, uh, quoted, that passage of, the, of, of Psalm 22. So we, we shouldn't be so quick to presume wanting the Bible, shaking it to its core to get a sense of its truth. It's not a violation of the third commandment. It, it just isn't. You're allowed to do that. But I think the other thing we need to have faith in is that truth rises to the top. And one of the things that Ken Smith often said to me, as he said, you know, Rosaria, some of this comes down to worldview. In, in the worldview of the Bible, what is true determines what is ethical and what is valuable. What you're telling me is that what is ethical and what is valuable is determining what is true. And that's really where our conflict is. Ken was really good at framing things like that. And, in, you know, it, these things come, you know, I'm, I'm now 17 years out. This, is, this, is, this was um, long ago and far away. And I was speaking at a on um, a college campus, a secular college campus, uh, and it was a really rough night. I had some some serious protesters and some, uh, and the Q and A was uh, completely. You're talking about recent, yeah, like, recently, a, like yes. a couple of years ago. The the the, the Q and A was uh, taken over by the Pride Committee, and they had some really tough questions. In fact, they reminded me of myself. And they started out with really like disrespectful questions. And at the end, this Q&A lasted an hour and a half. And at that, by the end, students were almost in tears as they were coming up to the microphone trying to get their questions asked. And pastors in the audience would come up and, and, and give them a helping hand, even sometimes read the cue card for them. It was very powerful. And one of the things that happened that night was the um, local uh, LGBT rights groups and the liberal churches gathered together to hold a rally to support these students from this you know, awful, condemning, Bible-believing Christian. You know, meaning named, you. Meaning me, right. And the following day, 8 o'clock in the morning, the RUF director and I met at the coffee shop to meet with any student who wanted to talk to us. And one of the first people there was the president of that pride committee. And we were surprised to see him, especially since he had been at that rally where everybody was telling him, God loves you just the way you are. The Bible is not tr- the Bible is not true, true. It's got some good parts in it, but not those parts. And we asked him why he was here. And one of the things he said was, well, I was up half the night with people who told me that I'm fine just the way I am but I'm not so sure that that's true. And I wanted to talk to you about it. Now this was a student who had worked uh, tirelessly to keep me off campus, who had become quite a serious adversary. And he had a question because he wasn't quite sure that the liberal churches were telling him the truth. And why is that? Because Romans one is right. Because that still small voice was still his to hear. And I praise God for that. So we ought not be, um, you know, there's just a lot of um, sucker punching, you know, that Mm -hmm. goes on, right? Mm -hmm. And we want to stay in it for the long haul with people. Mm -hmm. Ken Smith and Floyd Smith stayed stayed in it for the long Mm -hmm. haul with me. They met with me for two years before I ever stepped foot in a church. That's
0: long. That's a long time. I love what you wrote in your book about when you did go to church. This has really stuck with me, and this was in The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert, where you said, these people, with their complete marriages, their kind children, their well-spent lives, cast a reflection on the legacy of my choice-making. I mean, that's not only a fabulous sentence, it's a very poignant thought are there ways that we in the church perhaps in one-on-one conversations but since specifically we're talking to people who are up front and so they've got Mm -hmm. the microphone Mm -hmm. if you can make yourself that person who sat on that pew at that point and felt that way are there ways we make that worse or and are there ways we can make that better what are the things we need to be sensitive to to that person you described yourself to be
1: right right you know that's a that's a That's a hard question because, you know, really the Lord used that to my good. Mm -hmm. So uh, it's true that I felt that. And it's true that that feels awful. And it's true that when I woke up to my sexual sin, you know, I thought I was on the side of morality and decency and diversity and compassion. And when I learned that it was Jesus I had been persecuting the whole time, not just, not just some historical figure named Jesus, but my Jesus, my Savior, my Lord, my King, my friend. You know, that's when Psalm 73 came at full force. I am like a beast before you. And one of the things we need to remember is that when you, and I think this is Romans 126. I think this is the implication of Romans 126. If you cannot get a blessing from God, you will demand it from men. You'll demand it. And, and you know what? There's never enough of it because it's an idol, and idols need to be fed. And so so really the feeling, the reality that I was in the wrong and that these people that I had made fun of, these people whose, um, uh, whose values I had despised, these women whose um, – subs you know what I would have called subservient doormat life existences were pathetic they were right and my interpretation of them was all wrong and it was like all of a sudden I woke up to realize that that mirror I had been looking into my whole life was like a carnival mirror And it was overwhelming. There was really nothing that anyone in the church did that that was, you know, I don't know, offensive or bad. I mean, sure, people said offensive things, and you know, people are people. But there was it wasn't really what they did. It was rather the way that their integrity cast aspersion on me. And you know, we're seeing this today. You know, why are Christians uh, being? Considered responsible for a terrorist attack in Orlando, Florida. Why? Because the integrity of Christian lives casts a particular shadow upon the choice-making of others. And you know what? You either submit to it or you kick against it with all your worth. Because repentance unto life feels like death Mm. that's why it's called the mortification (laughs) of sin Mm -hmm. it's because it is death Mm. and before there's life in christ there's death and that's because the gospel comes not in addition to your life but in exchange for it and that really hurts and it's good Mm. but first
0: it really hurts Mm. So, as a Bible teacher, are you saying that I can't set it as my goal to not offend? I mean, we don't want to be offensive for offensive sake.
1: No, no, no. That's right. That's right. You don't want to,
0: you, you don't add, you don't, the gospel is an offense. Yes. Because it calls you to die. I guess what I'm thinking, Rosario, I'm thinking about a number of settings I've been in where a real focus on the ch- of the church is to be hospitable, and then that's a very high mm-hmm, value right. in the church. Should it be?
1: Absolutely. Okay. Oh, absolutely. What does it mean? Define it,
0: though, maybe. Right.
1: Absolutely. I mean, hospitality is loving the stranger and bringing the stranger in. Hospitality, I, 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 you know, I'm fond of saying that the gospel should come with a house key, and mm-hmm. I learned that first at Ken Smith's table. Mm-hmm. Where that that door, I mean, I'm sure it had hinges, but I was seeing it move. It was open. It was open. It was open. Um, Hospitality isn't faking it, though. Hospitality is a real and transparent exposition of a Christian calling Jesus to enter into all of our life conversations. Mm. And not just because it's just us chickens, but because Jesus is Lord so that you know it doesn't matter and and we, you know we've had a really interesting experience recently in our in our neighborhood um we it was a tough experience we had a neighbor who was um bit of a recluse and um easily could become the boo radley you know (laughs) of the block and did some peculiar things and but over the course of time um we he became our friend Mm. and we'd walk dogs together and he came to our house for thanksgiving and christmas and and he lived alone and 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 struggled with depression and so Mm. it was very uneven and and um and it was shocking. About a month ago, um, it turned out that he was uh, running a meth lab in his house. Wow! Very serious. Police everywhere, media everywhere. And one of the things that our neighbors wanted to know was how could we be friends with this person? How could we be friends with this dangerous, awful, terrible person? And so Kent did what you know what is the only thing to do. He invited all of our neighbors to a cookout. Um, on the lord's day after church and he did the only logical thing he shared the gospel we were joking that if you could go to the party store and get party favors that said let's convert gossip into prayer
0: that's what would be <laughs> written, was the party because
1: that was the theme and you know kent shared the gospel and he said you know what we would not have done it any other way because we're called to love the stranger and we're going to stick with him. He's yeah. our friend. We're going to mm-hmm. write. We're going to visit because God's not done with him yet. Mm. And um, that's had a very interesting effect in our neighborhood. So people know we're Bible-believing Christians. People know we stand strong on biblical sexual ethics. People know that, that we proclaim the gospel and truth. And they also know we love the neighbor that everybody wants to hate. hmm because that's what Christian hospitality is. Mm-hmm. But you can't possibly do that without bringing Jesus full front into this conversation. Mm-hmm. So so yes, be hospitable. Mm-hmm. And yes, bring Jesus into every conversation and family devotions and psalm singing and prayer. Do what you do because people need to know that the means of grace are not these big secrets that Christians keep to themselves? Mm-hmm. You know the means of grace. It's very. If you're an unbeliever, how would you know what the means of grace are? If it's only practiced behind closed doors, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and if it's only by invitation only, mm-hmm. it's not about the gospel. Is not a bounded system, and mm-hmm. and Ken and Floyd displayed that to me mm-hmm. over two years of me um, reading the Bible, beating my head against it coming up with a million critiques, talking to Ken, and hearing him out.
0: Mm -hmm. I want to read kind of a long quote, so stick with me, listeners, uh, from Openness Unhindered. You wrote, As I have traveled to different churches and colleges to speak about biblical sexuality, I have met countless people for whom every vital relationship has been marred by sexual sin. I've met wives whose husbands have pornography addictions, whose teenage children engage in forwarding sexually explicit pictures on text messages, whose best friends frequent illicit cybersex sites and engage in cutting and mutilation. I've met husbands whose Bible-believing wives have left them for lesbian lovers. I've met teenagers who are in sexual relationships with their biological cousins who believe they have GSA, or genetic sexual attraction. I've met preteen girls, homeschooled, protected their whole lives, who found violent pornography on her mom's cell phones and cannot go back to any place of safety and peace. I met one woman who had had seven abortions, who goes to church weekly, and who lives a double life. And for each of these people, the sense of being out of control is overwhelming. For the parents and loved ones, whom you call the secondary victims. The shame, guilt, and secret-keeping is unbearable. Mm -hmm. And when I read that, I was thinking about you're speaking in churches and colleges. Mm -hmm. These are people I think sometimes as teachers we can forget that there are likely people that we are are speaking to who have all of these kind of things Mm -hmm. going on in our lives, and here we are. We're trying to get across our deep doctrinal issue mm-hmm. clearly, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Um, you know our Old Testament histor history clearly. And here's these people, and they're sitting out there, and they are, as you said, overwhelmed with the shame, guilt, and secret mm-hmm. keeping, and that it is unbearable. Right. And so, just as I read this, I just thought, I I feel like personally, as a teacher. That when I'm preparing, I need to be looking at my applications and thinking through these various people and saying, is there something there for them? Um, What else? I mean, what what should we assume about individuals under our teaching, and how should that impact what we say, what we don't say? Right. I would
1: say we should assume almost nothing. Okay. I think that there's a particular way that Satan has stirred up this world, in the, specifically in sexual sin, that makes it almost impossible even within the church, because I'm mostly speaking within conservative reformed churches. Uh, and this is, this is where I'm hearing much of this, right? So it's not like I'm, I'm in the prison system or, you know, I'm, I'm working with prostitutes or I'm, no, I'm, I'm working with homeschooled kids. I, I'm, I'm, so I really don't think it's a good idea to assume. I think it's a great idea to prayerfully ask that, that, that the Lord reveal and that, and that people in your world disclose with appropriate boundaries you know one of the concerns is you a lot of this you don't actually want to hear disclosed in the in a in an explicit way in a bible study because because talking about pornography can easily cause somebody else to stumble who's been trying to resist pornography so so that's the other challenging thing but you know one of the things that ken smith never did with me is he never presumed i was a blank slate he just didn't And so he allowed me to introduce myself. Now, you might picture something in your mind if you hear lesbian activist, professor, tenured radical, but Ken saw image of God, neighbor, friend who needs Jesus. You might picture something when you think the weight of sexual sin, but Ken saw an unbeliever who needed Jesus. Ken never thought that my lesbianism was the biggest sin in my life. He knew that unbelief was. Mm. So I, I would just be careful to leave room for people to move into, um, especially as we're teaching the Bible, you know, there's no safer place to have these things come up and out. Because the Bible not only speaks to us, it speaks for us. And so the pornography addict who has also made a profession of faith, but is so beaten down right now by the sexual sin that he has no idea if he's really a believer. He needs the Bible to speak for him. He needs to be able to work through the Bible such that he can find his way again. And, um, and all of this can happen within Old Testament, within, within a survey of the Old Testament and all of it. There isn't one, it's not like the Bible is a, you know, it's not like a, like a, like a flu inoculation and boy, we better get this year's strain. strain. Yeah. It's not Mm. like that at all. It's, you know, the, it's the whole counsel of God. The Bible is a unified biblical revelation And the more that people can lean into that, the better. So it's not like you have, well, here's the Bible study for pornography addicts. And then, boy, it's a good thing Ken Smith was talking about this passage. No, I had read through the Bible seven times. We weren't talking about one passage. I needed to get the big picture. And one of the things the big picture did is it it made me realize that if God is good and if God is holy and if the Bible is trustworthy— and I was on the wrong side of this conversation.
0: Your newest book, Openness Unhindered, it's based on Acts 28, 30 and mm-hmm. 31, which reads, And he stayed two full years in his own rented quarters and was welcoming all who came to him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. Mm-hmm. That sounds to me like an aim for all of us mm-hmm. as, as Bible teachers. So what do you think that looks like to be a teacher who teaches concerning the Lord Jesus Christ mm-hmm. with all openness unhindered?
1: Right, right, right. I just picture Paul, right, picturing him in that situation. He, he actually knows what will happen to him. He knows mm. that um, he will be martyred. For his faith and and in some ways, even if he didn't have direct revelation on that subject, I would think he would suspect it. you know I mean I, I am now going back to the world I helped create mm-hmm. um, hoping to redeem that world i'm not a welcome i 'm mm-hmm. not a welcome guest i 'm an unwelcome guest, and I think that's a that's a reality um and I think that's more and more a reality of where Christians will be, right? As the mm-hmm. li- religious liberty falls out, so we need to figure out how to be open unhindered in a world that regards us as its unwelcome guests. And there was Paul doing it. One of the things I mean, I think this means is that you have a structure of openness, which might seem like a contradiction. That seems you know? like a contradiction. Um, so, but but what you know, I. I think it's important to have a structure in that you are you are a prepared teacher you have you you are in the word yourself, you have really thought through not just what it means for you but what it means <laughs> you know what it means um, and at the same time you 're unhindered in so far as anybody can come. Uh, I mean, you know, I know sometimes, sometimes it's important to have a Bible study that has a kind of bounded system to it. Sometimes that can be really helpful, but but that can't be every Bible study. You know, every Bible study coming out of every woman's kitchen cannot be just us homeschool moms or just us whatever. It just It just can't because where will the world, where will the lost meet the means of grace if we keep it a secret as though... I don't know what we're going to be, we're going to be hurt. It's going to be hurt. Mm -hmm. So, so I think, you know, wouldn't it be wonderful if we had one night a week that was a kind of open Bible study, um, you know, and it would be sort of a neighbor night, you know, neighbors could come, kids could play, you know, with the water pistols in the backyard. Um, you know, we'll sit outside on the porch, we'll have watermelon at the end. We'll go through a, you know, a chapter of the Bible. It's not, it's not a big, you know, it doesn't have to be a big worked up thing, But what it needs to do is be a practice. You know, sometimes before you have a purpose, you have a practice. And wouldn't it be wonderful if that could be one of the ways we conceive of a study? Um, A a neighborhood outreach, even a way of getting to know people. Um, This is who I am. This is what makes me tick. Mm -hmm. This is how I'm thinking about things. And I think Christians tend to think, well, whoo, we just can't do that today. But, you know, you, you, maybe if we take some bigger risks, the Lord will meet us in those risks in bigger ways. Mm-hmm. If, if everybody resists saying, I think these, these new laws about gender identity are just off. If we only say that to each other, I I wonder how any of this is going to change. I mean, I think it's helpful for unbelievers to hear their Christian neighbors say, uh, you know, I'm in North Carolina. We've got HB2. It's very political, very charged. And and for the most part, the newspapers are just making it seem like you're just a terrible, horrible bigot if you don't support um, uh, transgender bathrooms. And I just say to my neighbors, look, you know, I think that being born male and female comes with ethical and moral responsibilities. I don't know. what do you think? you know and mm. and it's not like right?
0: Yeah, it's not an argument. It's yeah, not an yeah, argument. Like I'm not you
1: know, it's just a discussion. it's 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 an opinion. It's not like I'm not leaving room for other people to have their opinion. Mm-hmm. But if I never said anything, you know, and I said, well, you know, that's actually from genesis one twenty six. It's right there in the first book of the Bible, in the first chapter. It's almost on the second page of the Bible, depending upon how good your eyes are and how small the print is. Mm-hmm. You know, what do you think? So anyway, I mean, I I, don't, I just don't think, I think you need to be prepared because I think the more open your Bible study is, you know, the, Get ready. the, the wilder <laughs> it can be. Yeah. But I imagine that's how Paul was working.
0: Mm-hmm. I, oh, I do too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I
1: just don't think that this overly controlled, yeah. you know. Model like we have today in right, some is, is
0: quite how it's supposed to be. Yeah. Another quote from your book. You said, I had read the Bible many times through, and I saw for myself that it had a holy author. I saw for myself it was a canonized collection of 66 books with a unified biblical revelation. I heard for myself that when the words... This is mine came out of my mouth in congregational singing. I was attesting to this one simple truth that the line of communication that God ordained for his people required this wrestling with scripture and that I truly wanted both to hear God's voice breathed in my life. And I wanted to hear I wanted God to hear my pleas. The fog burned away. The whole Bible, each jot and tittle was my Open highway to a holy God. You mentioned this earlier. You don't have to go to a specific text for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, people weren't going to an evangelistic text for you that drew you for, to Christ. You did see that the whole of the Bible had a part in drawing you to Christ. Mm-hmm. What do you think this means mm-hmm. for us as teachers?
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, one of the things it means as teachers is to not be afraid. You know, to not, you have a visitor to your Bible study Mm -hmm. and, and you just, you just like, well, uh, you know, we're, we're in a genealogy. What now? But to not, to not presume, oh dear, we're in an imprecatory Psalm. What were we thinking? (laughs) Don't fear. I mean, handle the text. In, in truth and in care, make sure that it's in its proper setting, that people can have a foothold as to who the, the audience was and show where Christ is in this conversation and, and, and allow it to do its work. You know, when I, when I sit down with people who struggle with same-sex desire, I start with Psalm 119 because it's and you know what you're like hmm that's weird why would you go there well because it's the it's the book it's the cha- it's the chapter that tells that tells everyone how god wants you to read the bible so if it's going to be that important we should start with why do we read the bible this way a couple of years ago when the gay marriage debate really got into full swing really after uh, you know i think it was about 2013 after doma collapsed that's when it really kind of came wide open Why couldn't your everyday Christian answer the question that the world was posing? And this was the question, how can the Bible's condemnation of homosexuality be relevant when we're only talking about six puny little pesky verses? Why couldn't Christians say, but wait a second, there's a biblical unified revelation. The Bible's like a beautiful tapestry. You can't go to a tapestry and pull out six pesky threads and have it be anything. In fact, if you do that over time, it becomes completely deformed. Mm -hmm. So you just can't read the Bible that way. You just can't pull out six verses and say, we can go without these Mm -hmm. because they're pesky. You know, they're just pesky, pesky. Mm -hmm. That's not how it, it, you just can't read it that way in the same way that you can't read Mama very well when she's angry because you haven't put the dishes. You know, we all read social contexts all the time, and we, know, we need to know how to read them. So mm. there's a reason that we're in the, the situation we're in today. It's really not the fault of gay rights activists. You know, LGBT rights activists did not cause the problem where Christians did not know how to re- read their Bible sufficiently that they could respond to the, the problems. It's just not their fault. It's really our
0: fault. So now our work is cut out. Let's take it seriously. Another quote from your book. You say, there is another term that competes for my allegiance. It's sola experientia. I love that. Did you make up that term? No, I didn't make it up. (laughs) And by that, you mean my personal experience shaping and selecting those parts of the Bible I judge relevant for me. So... I think most of us who've been around people and listened to how people handle the Bible, we've got a pretty good feel because we think we've heard this before or we've heard this. But tell us what you mean.
1: Well, you know, there are two two important gestures in the Reformation that are, are dear to my heart. One was to destroy all the idols, and the other was to proclaim the whole word of God. And both of those are very hard to do. But I would say every Bible teacher is engaged in both of those because as you're teaching a passage of Scripture, you're calling people to destroy the idols in their heart. In fact, what Scripture does is it exposes the idols. Of our heart, it exposes them for us to see, and likely for everybody else to see too.
0: And don't expect everybody when you're up there teaching and exposing the idols. Don't expect them to always love you for that. (laughs) No, no, it's 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 really
1: quite ruthless in some ways. And so it is very tempting to say, "Well, my experience is, is true and vital because it is important to me." Life experience is important. The question is, is my life experience a true reflection of who I am? Or is my life experience a distortion of who I am through the fall? And how do I know? Well, it could be either one. It could be either one. The experience itself doesn't unfold itself and therefore be transparent about whether it is a distortion or a reflection. It is the word of God that we use to examine this. But if we insist on using our experience... As the barometer of what is true and what is good, we do have sola experientia. We have the, the, uh, the idea that really what we desire and what we want is good, and the Bible is only relevant to that. And I'll tell you that we do this all the time. We look at the Bible and we say, it certainly can't mean what it says, because that would be too hard. Uh, I mean, it would just be too hard,
0: right? Wow, that can't be, really expect me to do that.
1: You can't really, and you know what? On our own strength, amen. None of us can do any of this on our own strength. So we could, we should be somewhat sympathetic. But you know, for me, it really was a question: Are my same sex? Uh, at the time, you know, this is seventeen years ago, and so I'm, I'm, I'm hearing what the Bible's saying. I'm hearing what my heart is saying, and it was just a question: Are my same sex desires? A reflection of who I really am That's what I believe That's why I said I'm a lesbian I wasn't trying to be cagey I was trying to be honest Or Are they a distortion of who I am Through Adam And when people say Well it just can't be sin Because it just, it just feels, feels too so good right, Yeah, you know? It's like well You know If your sin doesn't feel good You're just not doing it right you know, Maybe you need Maybe you need a coach Or something you know? Now I know that As we grow in sanctification We get You know We get a little good rebuke on that mm. But for the most part We sin because it feels good and that's true for all of us. Mm-hmm. So, and, and it's also true for all of us is that faith is a gift from God. We can't make it happen. And repentance is a gift mm-hmm. from God. You can't make yourself repent. You can't make your children repent. And admitting sin is not the same thing as repenting. It's, it's not enough to just say, hey, this, mm-hmm. is, this is where I struggle. Uh-huh. And then it's just kind of uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Well, we won't we won't use the word of God like a double edged sword on that, Rosaria. That would be painful, and it is, mm-hmm. and it's good.
0: Mm-hmm. Oh, Rosaria, this has been a really fascinating, helpful, meaty. Interesting conversation.
1: No, I've loved it. Thank
0: you. And I think it'll be really helpful to the many Bible teachers who are listening in. So would you close this way? Would you just speak directly to those who are listening? And, you know, these are people, the reason they take up God's word is they've got confidence that God's word is what people need most to hear. People who are trapped in sin. Yes. People who struggle yes with sin people trapped in sin people who are far away from god Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. people who need the comfort and correction that the word has to offer these that's who we're talking to and they're preparing to teach the word Week by week, mm-hmm. would you just speak directly to them? Give yeah. them a word, perhaps of either of instruction or encouragement, mm-hmm. as they seek to teach the Bible in a way very aware of the very real sin struggles of those who are hearing them teach, mm-hmm. and holding that intention with this desire to simply illumine what is there in the text. Right,
1: right, right. Well, I have a word of thanks to you Bible teachers who are preserving the word of God as a heritage for our children and our children's children. My word is a word of thanks. My word is a word of encouragement to not fear if there is only one person who comes to that study this week, to not, to not notice the numbers, to not be discouraged by what humbles you, to remember that what humbles you can't hurt you, um, to remember that keeping the word of God alive in the hearts of people is hard work, and it's noble work, and it's 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 Old Testament prophet work. It's um, it's not work that comes with a paycheck or a big attaboy or a thanks. It's God's work, and it's vital and it's necessary, and it is also necessary because. Things are so hard right now. Um, The word of God is under attack and derision. And sadly, not just from unbelievers, but from wolves in sheep's clothing who claim to be believers, many of them seminary trained with letters behind their name. And so if you are the faithful Bible teacher listening to this thinking, well, what good can I do? i don't have letters behind my name and and the, the women i teach what what good can they do well the world can be changed through the efforts that 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 you are putting forward through faith through grace in love with the lord jesus christ god can breathe on that and um, and transmute that far and wide. It is the it is the labor of faithful saints with the sharp sword of the spirit, the word of God, that is going to bring the healing balm of life to this world. And it may get worse before it gets better. But we're not to be sucker punched. We're not to be looking now at numbers, uh, at programs. We're to be praying for revival. We're to be praying for God to help his people apply faith to the facts of the trials of our life. We're to remember that union with Christ is the greatest gift that a believer has um, in the context, of course, of, of salvation. And we're to remember that one person, one lost sheep turned around is a life's work right there. Right there, so have heart, have faith, and also we're to allow, allow. You know what a what a blessing to be working with the Word of God. Allow it to be your balm. Allow it to wash over you. Allow it to heal your hurts. Allow it to um, illumine your indwelling sin patterns. Feel the sweet peace of repentance and the joy of trials, and and be transparent with that for others. There are many, many people who will not walk through the doors of a church, but they'll walk through the doors of your home and sit in your living room as you open the Bible. Never fear that that's in vain. That's the most vital work that there is. And I thank you from the depths of
0: my heart. Thank you so much, Rosaria. Thank you. I love it that you're my sister. Ah, praise God. You've been listening to Help Me Teach the Bible with Nancy Guthrie, a production of the Gospel Coalition sponsored by Crossway. Crossway is a not-for-profit publisher of the ESV Bible, Christian books, and tracks. Learn more about their gospel-centered resources at crossway.org.